Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2016 Autumn Retreat. Our theme this year is American Exceptionalism in the 21st Century. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. This panel discussion is entitled 20th Century Champions of American Exceptionalism, Herbert Hoover and Ronald Reagan. It features historian and Herbert Hoover biographer George H. Nash and research fellow Annalise Anderson. The moderator is Hoover Research Fellow David Davenport, and it was recorded on October 17, 2016. One way that I've thought about this session is that it's great to explore a topic like American exceptionalism from the realm of ideas and scholars and writers and historians. But then I think it's also good to hear about it from the point of view of practitioners, uh, people who are in the arena crafting policy, uh, setting forth uh, kind of America's place in the world. Uh, and so I think it's, I think we may get a little different point of view in this session that will be very helpful in rounding out our, our understanding of American exceptionalism. Certainly when you look back on the 20th century, two of the great heroes of American exceptionalism, I think, are pretty obvious. Uh, Herbert Hoover, who lived in a very important time in terms of establishing America's identity and its values, after World War II, uh, I'm sorry, after World War I and through the Great Depression and into the New Deal in his post-presidency. And then Ronald Reagan, uh, again, another very important time in the, turned out to be the final throes of the war on communism and establishing America's identity uh, in the world at that time, uh, becoming president right in the heels of the, of the hostage situation in Iran and, and preparing for the fall of communism, two very important times in the 20th century, and I think two great champions of American exceptionalism. We have the two best people I think we could have in talking about American exceptionalism, and Hoover on the one hand and Reagan on the other hand, and we'll see how their views might come together. I don't even know that myself. <laughs> um, George Nash is with us on the other side of the uh, podium. Uh, George is, a, is a, an historian and a Hoover biographer. Uh, he's a graduate of Amherst College with a PhD uh, in history from Harvard. And he, I think, George, I'm safe in saying you have written, edited, and published more about Herbert Hoover than anyone. That seems like a safe statement. Uh, he's not going to argue with me. <laughs> Most recently, he unearthed and published uh, the last two of Herbert Hoover's own works uh, that had been left uh, closed up. Uh, he, may, I mean, he may or may not explain that, and you can ask him about it in questions. It's really a pretty interesting story. Uh, and one was Freedom Betrayed, uh, which was, is often called Hoover's magnum opus about America's place in the world. And then more recently, uh, while he was working on Freedom Betrayed, he unearthed another manuscript that I don't think we really knew about, which is now also <coughs> published by Hoover Press uh, called The Crusade Years uh, about Herbert Hoover's crusade against the New Deal and collectivism. Uh, even more timely, um, the Hoover Press has just this week published, released, what we think of as one of Herbert Hoover's very best writings, uh, an essay or a small book he wrote in 1922 called American Individualism, where a lot of his ideas and his philosophy are very well developed. Um, even the New York Times and Frederick Jackson Turner and some others had some very kind things to say about this very strong philosophical document from a politician, uh, of all things. And so we have a copy of that for you uh, uh, with a very nice a new, fresh introduction that George Nash wrote uh, for that book. George is also a scholar on the subject of conservatism. He's the author of a, an important book, The Conservative Intellectual Movement in America, since 1945. And he has a recent article last month in the new criterion on American conservatism and populism. that sort of takes into account part of the current conservative crisis. We'll just leave it at that. Um, so uh, George will be talking to us about Herbert Hoover and American exceptionalism. Annalise Anderson uh, is an economist, a longtime Hoover Institution scholar, and was part of Ronald Reagan's campaign team uh, in 1980 and was also part of his administrative team in the early years of his presidency at the Office of Management and Budget. 
She is a graduate of Wellesley College with her PhD from Columbia. Uh, she was a senior executive at OMB in Reagan's term, having also been a senior policy advisor during Reagan's campaign. Among many important works about Ronald Reagan, she and her husband, the late Martin Anderson, also a longtime Hoover fellow, unearthed and worked on uh, Reagan's letters, speeches, and writings done in his own hand at the Reagan Library, and published three books, I believe, coming out of that, which had the very, I think, important, powerful impact of sort of putting to bed once and for all this myth that Reagan was just a great communicator, uh, because all of this, all of these speeches and ideas, which were very substantive policy ideas, were in his own hand. So it was hard to argue that these were that his own brain wasn't developing some pretty powerful thinking, right along with his abilities as a great uh, communicator. Mo most recently, uh, Annalise and and Martin published a book, uh, Ronald Reagan: Decisions of Greatness. Uh, and we have copies of that book also available as you leave if you'd like to take that with you. So I've asked uh, George to speak first about Herbert Hoover for about 20 minutes and Annalise to do that. Well, I didn't say about <laughs> 20 minutes and then uh, Annalise to speak about Reagan for 20 minutes. Then maybe I'll pose two or three questions and then we'll, we'll open the floor first to the lower bowl, those brave souls who <laughs> took the extra steps to come down here and then and then to So George, please... Uh, proceed on the subject of Herbert Hoover and American exceptionalism. Well, thank you, David, for that gracious introduction. And good afternoon, everyone. It is a pleasure and an honor to be in your company with David, Dr. Anderson, Dr. Gilligan. And I want to thank you and your colleagues for inviting me to participate in this forum. It is truly a pleasure to be here with you. During his very long life, Herbert Hoover developed a political and social philosophy which he believed could explain the the greatness of the country he loved. To understand his vision of American exceptionalism, we need to understand the exceptional shape of his career before he entered American public life. He was born in 1874 in a little Quaker community of West Branch, Iowa, a son of the village blacksmith. Before he was 10, both of his parents had died. From 1885, Iowa in 1885, he was sent to live with the family of an uncle in Oregon, where he stayed for nearly six years. In 1891, he entered Stanford University as a member of its pioneer class. At Stanford, he flourished, graduating in 1895 with a degree in geology and an ambition to become a mining engineer. From then on, his rise in his chosen profession was rapid. In 1897, his San Francisco employer recommended him for a position in Western Australia with an eminent British firm of mining engineers. Hoover's journey from California to Australia via New York, London, France, Italy, and the Suez Canal was a tremendously stimulating experience for a young man of 22. Years later, he remarked significantly, history became a reality and America a contrast. Upon arriving in Western Australia, Hoover headed for the gold fields of the desolate outback, where he would live for the next year and a half. After one arduous trip, probably by camel, far into the bush, he wrote to a cousin, am on my way back to Coolgardie, that was a little gold mining town, am glad to get back within the borders of civilization. Coolgardy is three yards inside it, Perth is about a mile, and of course, San Francisco is the center. <laughs> Anybody who envies me my salary can just take my next trip with me, and he will then be contented to be a bank clerk at $3 a week for the rest of his life, just to live in the United States. Stanford is the best place in the world. Not surprisingly, Hoover acquired a nickname in Australia. H.C. were the initials of his first and middle names, H.C. Hoover. His friend said that H.C. stood for Hail Columbia. <laughs> Hoover's success in the land down under was immediate. Before he was 24, 
he was made superintendent of what became one of the greatest gold mines in Australian history, the Sons of Gwalior Mine. Then, late in 1898, his British employer offered him an even better job in China. Before going there, he returned to California and married his sweetheart, Lou Henry, Stanford, class of 1898. The very next day, they boarded a ship for China, where they lived for more than two years and survived a harrowing rush with death in the Boxer Rebellion. Once again, Hoover, a go-getting American still in his 20s, found himself living among strangers and encountering a foreign civilization. In late 1901, Hoover left China for England and a partnership in the firm of mining engineers that had hired him less than five years before. Until World War I, London, the mining and financial capital of the world, was his base of operations while he traveled continually, inspecting, financing, and developing mines from Burma to Australia, from South Africa to Siberia. By 1914, he had traveled around the world five times and had mining interests on every continent except Antarctica. For some Americans with similar careers and lifestyles, the temptation might have been irresistible to become an expatriate. For Hoover, the very opposite was true. In London, his pro-American sentiments were so pronounced that he was known to some as the star-spangled Hoover. <laughs> Throughout these years of adventure, as he called, him, called them, his thoughts turned often back to his native land, where he planned eventually to resettle. And all the while, in England and on his many business journeys, he was observing and evaluating the social systems of the old world and the new. On one of his ocean voyages, a British lady asked him what his profession was. An engineer, he replied. Why, she exclaimed, I thought you were a gentleman. <laughs> this anecdote, which Hoover later recounted in his memoirs, epitomized his deep distaste for the class consciousness and social rigidities of Europe. From all of this, he turned. In 1914, World War I enveloped Europe and utterly changed the course of Hoover's life. While giant European armies bogged down in the trenches, Hoover, working without pay, founded and directed the Commission for Relief in Belgium, a neutral organization that procured and distributed food to the entire civilian population of Belgium caught between a German army of occupation and a British naval blockade. It was an unprecedented undertaking that eventually brought food to more than nine million people a day and catapulted Hoover to worldwide fame as a humanitarian. When the United States entered the war in 1917, Hoover left day-to-day -day administration of the CRB, the Commission for Relief in Belgium, to neutral subordinates and returned home to America, where he became head of the U.S. Food Administration, a special wartime agency of the federal government. At the end of the conflict, in November 1918, President Woodrow Wilson sent him back across the Atlantic, this time to feed starving Europe and facilitate its economic reconstruction, while Wilson and allied leaders struggled to draft a peace treaty in Paris. As director general of the American Relief Administration, Hoover organized the supply of food to suffering people in more than 20 nations, in the process helping to check the advance of social upheaval and especially communist revolution from the East Tens of millions of people owed their lives to his exertions. It was later said of him that he was responsible for saving more lives than any other person <coughs> in history. On September 13, 1919, the international humanitarian hero returned at last to America's shores. Despite his phenomenal accomplishments in the preceding 10 months, he was not a contented man. Every day at the peace conference in Paris, he had witnessed a depressing display of national rivalries 
vengefulness, and greed. He had seen as well the sometimes violent attempts of communists and other radicals to construct a new social order in Europe based on the principles of Marxist socialism. And increasingly, he had seen America in contrast. Hoover returned to his native land with two dominant convictions. The first was that the ideology of socialism, as tested before him in Europe, was a catastrophic failure. Unable to motivate men and women to produce sufficient goods for the needs of society. Hoover's second conviction was also firmly held. More than ever before, he sensed what he called the enormous distance that America had drifted from Europe in its 150 years of nationhood. A distance reflected, he said, in our outlook on life, our relations toward our neighbors, and our social and political ideals. Coming back to the United States from Europe, Hoover sensed that his own country was, vulner was vulnerable to the afflictions he had witnessed abroad. He implored his fellow citizens not to turn their country into, in his words, a laboratory for experiment in foreign social diseases. In numerous speeches and articles, Hoover began to define the American alternative. The foundation for the distinctive American social philosophy, he asserted, was the principle of equality of opportunity. The idea that no one should be, in his words, handicapped in securing the particular niche in the community to which his abilities and character entitle him. Unlike Europe, where oppressive class barriers had generated misery and revolutionary discontent, the American social system was based, in his words, upon the negation of class. To Hoover, the principle of equality of opportunity was quite simply, and again I quote him, our most precious social ideal. As he put it some years later, this idea of a fluid, classless society was unique in the world. It was the point at which our social structure departed from all others. In the 1920s and later, Hoover continued to ask himself, why was America so different? Why was it unique? One result, as David has mentioned, was a little volume called American Individualism, which he published in 1922, and which, as been mentioned, has just been republished by the Hoover Institution Press. In this little volume, Hoover articulated America's bedrock philosophy, social philosophy of cooperative individualism in contrast to the pernicious collectivistic competitors that were bubbling up overseas. Another result of his ruminations was a book of political philosophy titled The Challenge to Liberty, which appeared in 1934 after he left the White House. It was a powerful defense of what he now called historic liberalism against the ascendant statist ideologies of Europe, including fascism, Nazism, and communism, and against the American variant of statism, which he called regimentation, his term for Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal. In 1919 and 1920, Hoover's vexation with Europe had not been so deep as to preclude his advocacy of American involvement in European affairs. But as the years passed, his estrangement from Europe gradually intensified. The new world, he came to believe, was remote from the fanatic ideologies, ethnic animosities, dictatorships, power politics, imperialism, and class stratification of Europe. What he had witnessed in 1919, he concluded, was something far more than the intrigues of diplomacy or the foibles of European statesmen. It was, he said, the collision of civilizations that had grown 300 years apart. These outspoken sentiments undergirded Hoover's opposition between 1939 and December 7, 1941 to American entry into World War II. 
They also colored his attitude toward US foreign aid to Europe in the late 1940s and toward American military strategy during the Cold War. Hoover's knowledge of European history and social injustices made him leery of American interventionism abroad. It was America's national mission, he said in 1938, to keep alight the lamp of true liberalism. And he added, it was in the United States that we must keep it alight. It is unusual for American presidents to venture so self-consciously into the realm of political philosophy. Herbert Hoover did. Unlike most American men of affairs who have been content to act on the public stage but not to meditate much about it, he endeavored to explain the essence of the American regime he cherished. Why? The fundamental reason, I believe, is this. More than any other man who has held the office of the presidency, Hoover was profoundly acquainted over an extended period with the ruling elites and social systems of the old world. I have seen the squalor of Asia, the frozen class barriers of Europe, and I was not a tourist, he said on one occasion. He had seen the haughty oligarchies of the right, the bloody tyrannies of the left, and the hatreds, injustices, and miseries they engendered. He had seen the terrible consequences of imperialism, war, and revolution, as few Americans ever had. So it's not too surprising that he founded the Hoover Institution on War, Revolution, and Peace. My every frequent homecoming, he declared in 1948, has been a reaffirmation of the glory of America. Each time, my soul was washed by the relief from grinding poverty of other nations, by the greater kindliness and frankness which comes from the acceptance of equality and a belief in wide open opportunity to all who want a chance. It is more than that. It is a land of self-respect, born alone of free men and women. This perception of contrast between the old world and the new was the experiential core of his social and political philosophy. It gave him a lifelong understanding of America as an exceptionally free, humane, and classless society that had come closer to implementing its ideals than any other nation on earth. It gave him a fervent sense of American uniqueness a conviction that the United States was, in his words, one of the last few strongholds of human freedom. And it impelled him to undertake, in his post-presidential years, what he called a crusade against collectivism, a crusade to preserve the American system of liberty from enemies both foreign and domestic. Hoover labeled his core value system American individualism, and later on, historic liberalism. For us today, a comparable term, I suppose, would be American exceptionalism. But whatever the label, Hoover taught us something we might well continue to ponder, that in an epoch of wars and revolutions, it is political philosophy, however perverted, that moves men and women for good or ill. <clears throat> From a lifetime of comparative social analysis, Hoover derived this lesson, that in the lives and destinies of nations, ideas and ideals have mattered. And I think he would say, they still do. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, George. Uh, Annalise, let's hear about Ronald Reagan as okay. a champion of exceptionalism. Ronald Reagan. Uh, Ronald Reagan's earlier, earliest explicit view of American exceptionalism was expressed in a speech he gave in 1952 in Fulton, Missouri, the same place where Winston Churchill six years earlier 
had said that an iron curtain has fallen across Europe from Staten in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic. At this time, uh, Reagan had been out of the country on one occasion when he had gone to England to make a movie. And he hadn't liked it, and he had found the food was not good, <laughs> and the people were regimented, and he, it was too cold. And so he was not particularly happy, he had nowhere near Herbert Hoover's international experience. He was at this time when he gave this speech to William Woods College, to the commencement class. Uh, he had been married to Nancy for a few months. He, he had been, he had served in World War II making films and he had, uh, his, his acting career in movies was fading. He had not yet been selected by General Electric to be their spokesman, nor of course he had he been governor or president. Um, here's what he said to the commencement, to the graduating class at William Woods. I, in my own mind, have thought of America as a place in the divine scheme of things that was set aside as a promised land. Any person with the courage, with the desire to tear up their roots, to strive for freedom, to attempt and dare to live in a strange and foreign place was welcome here. It was a place, in his view, where people could come because they wanted to be free and they could become Americans. It was not based on ethnic heritage, religion, race. Anybody could come who wanted to and become an American. Uh, Luke Hannon, who is Reagan, Reagan's main biographer, points out that this view that Reagan had, which is sort of a sacramental view uh, that he, that as he thinks of America as uh, that he held this throughout his life, and that it never degenerated into a view of American superiority. He did not make that mistake. Uh, this view is often um, summarized in a phrase that turns up in many of his speeches, I think in, including his last speech before he left the presidency, as a city on a hill. And he, taught, he uses this phrase in a 1978 radio commentary. So this is before, between the governorship and the presidency. And he's quoting John Winthrop, who was speaking to the pilgrims on the deck of the Arbella in 1630 off the coast of Massachusetts. And as he quotes uh, Winthrop, we shall be as a city on the hill. The eyes of all people are upon us, so that if we shall deal falsely with our God in this work we have undertaken, and so cause him to withdraw his present help from us, we shall be made a story and a byword throughout the world. So it's not only that the city on the hill is wonderful to look at, but that it is open to the observation of the world and the world's judgment. And I think that that's an important part of the city on a hill. It's not just a magnificent place. At the time Reagan was elected president of the United States, the concept of American exceptionalism was being challenged. Hostages had been held in the American embassy in Iran for, I think it was 40, 144 days. People were periodically waiting in gas lines on odd or even days, depending on the license plate to buy gas, at least in California. The economy was in trouble. Growth had been slow. It was called stagflation. Both unemployment was high, <coughs> and so was inflation. We had triple digits, double digits, in the consumer price index, mortgage rates, and the prime lending rate. And so the economy was really not in very good shape. And worse, the country seemed to have lost confidence in its own future and its ability to address and resolve these problems. Carter had tried to rescue 
the hostages in an Iran in a disastrous event with a sandstorm in which three helicopters crashed, something like that. And he tried to deal with the Soviets. And he had developed an arms limitation agreement, SALT II, and sent it to the Senate for ratification. It had been signed, and then the Soviets invaded Afghanistan. And the treaty was indefinitely postponed and was never signed. Uh, the general view of academics and pundits and people who were experts on the Soviet Union was that the Soviet Union and the United States were permanent fixtures in the world as superpowers, and we would have to learn to live indefinitely with the Soviets. Uh, some people, including some people who were major advisors to the Nixon and Ford administrations, believed that it was very difficult for a country with free markets and free elections to compete effectively with a centrally controlled economy like the Soviet Union. People thought they were doing really well. They could uh, devote resources without the agreement of the public and the taxpayers to national defense if that's what they wanted to do and they had a huge buildup, they could repress dissent. So if people objected, that was too bad. And we couldn't do that in the United States. We had to deal with the public that had some influence on taxation. We had a free press and so forth. So these people believed we could not compete effectively. Reagan did not think that was right. He had no such doubts. He had confidence in the American system and the idea that free markets and democracy freed people to be creative and to develop their own individuality. And, and we had incentives and that the economy could grow and we could outcompete the Soviets both economically and as a consequence militarily. And so that was important, his confidence. And the other, the other uh, prevailing view of the so-called experts on the Soviet Union at the time was that these two systems were not only indefinitely there competing with each other uh, effectively with possibly the centrally controlled economy doing differently, but they, they were different, but they were essentially morally equivalent. They had their system, we had ours, and who's to say one is better or not? They had been constructing more weapons than we had. Um, but Reagan, one of the major things he did in various speeches is he changed the view of the moral equivalence mm -hmm. of these two systems. He disagreed with that premise, and he got at it right away. In his first press conference in January, January 29th, 1981, nine days after he took office, or eight days, he said, I know of no leader. This shocked people. It was really astounding. I know of no leader of the Soviet Union since the revolution and including the present leadership that is not more than once repeated in the various communist congresses. They hold, <clears throat> they hold their determination, they hold their determination that their goal must be the promotion of world revolution and a one world socialist or communist state. They have openly and publicly declared that the only morality they recognize is what will further their cause, meaning they reserve unto themselves the right to commit any crime, to lie, to cheat, in order to attain their objective. And they view this as moral. We have different standards. Uh, and and when, if you deal with the Soviets uh, in date, through detente, Reagan said, you have to keep that in mind. This was uh, a pretty amazing statement to declare that the Soviet Union's uh, methods of dealing with other countries were fundamentally immoral. <coughs> and it was 
Reagan's first rejection of the moral equivalence of the Soviet Union, the Soviet system in the United States. Uh, in, his, in Reagan's 1982 speech to the British Parliament, June of 1982, he talks about a plan and a hope for the long term, the march of freedom and democracy, which will leave Marxism-Leninism on the ash heap of, of history as it has left other tyrannies which stifle the freedom and muzzle the self-expression of people. Uh, I think it's interesting to make a little comparison between that 1982 speech in which he is talking about fostering the infrastructure of democracy versus a more extreme view of American exceptionalism and of promoting democracy abroad that George W. Bush did in his second inaugural when he asserted that this was essential both to United States uh, security and that we would use our judgment of other nations in terms of how we treated them. So Reagan wasn't necessarily going away from some of the realism of the Nixon-Kissinger years, but simply stating a view of what he considered moral. Reagan also got a little off the reservation. I'm obviously picking my favorite quotations here, but another one in which he got a little off the reservation was his speech to the evangelicals in Orlando, Florida in March of 1983. And this speech escaped the, I think, the um, nitpicking of the State Department and even the National Security Council because it was not billed as an international speech. And this is the speech in which he encouraged the evangelicals uh, to take sides on the question of putting nuclear weapons in Europe to oppose those that the, the Soviets already had, and called them, the, called the Soviets the focus of evil in the modern world and an evil empire. And of course, that was another fairly astounding uh, statement. Um, Nancy objected to that. Some people thought that he was that Reagan was a cowboy who was just shooting whenever he wanted to. Uh, actually, he carefully determined when he wanted to let the Soviets know how he felt. And he talked to Nancy Reagan about that speech, and she wanted him to, turn, to tone it down. And he said, no, I have to let them know what my view of them is. So this was a fully intentful approach. His speech at the Berlin Wall, of course, is, is highly quoted, and on that, that one was, did go through all the process of government, and, and he fought to keep in the phrase, tear down this wall, and he let Gorbachev know. He said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall if you seek peace and prosperity. So he is basically saying to the Soviet Union, you are responsible in your policies for the fact that, there, that, that we lack peace and prosperity on the other side of this wall. Uh, so in conclusion, he views America as a special place, uh, chosen by God, but also accountable because it is in view of the whole world. Obviously, you can't really talk about Reagan's view of American exceptionalism without looking at immigration. One of the, one of the uh, policies that his view led, is considered to have led to, is the North American Accord that he expressed in 1980, where he um, wanted better relationships among Mexico, Canada, and the United States. And ultimately, this led to the free North American Free Trade Agreement that is under so much challenge in the current political debate. And Reagan was really in favor of free trade. And of course, uh, we have some uh, provisions to make sure it's fair trade as well in legislation. Uh, Mexico at the time was a third world country bordering a first world country with a big border. 
There were many people who came across for temporary or permanent work, and there were many people living in the United States who had not been uh, legally admitted, and that has to some and the birth rate in Mexico was extremely high. That has changed in recent years. So the birth rate in Mexico has fallen as it has in other parts and of uh, uh, Latin America and South America. And also there are as many Mexicans, according to current statistics, going back uh, to Mexico as are coming to the United States. However, uh, it was a problem at the time. And in conclusion, I'd like to show you just a one-minute clip of what Reagan said in 1980, April of 1980, in a debate with George Bush uh, on, in the primaries before the presidency. I think the time has come that the United States and our neighbors, particularly our neighbor to the South, should have a better understanding and a better relationship than we've ever had. And I think that we haven't been sensitive enough to our size and our power. They have a problem of 40 to 50 percent unemployment. Now, this cannot continue without the possibility arising with regard to that other country that we talked about, of Cuba and what it is stirring up, of the possibility of trouble below the border and we could have a very hostile and strange neighbor on our border. Rather than making them or talking about putting up a fence, why don't we work out some recognition of our mutual problems, make it possible for them to come here legally with a work permit, and then while they're working and earning here, they pay taxes here. And when they go, want to go back, they can go back and they can cross and open the border both ways by understanding their problems. This is the only safety valve right now they have with that unemployment that probably keeps the lid from blowing off down there. And I think we could have a, friend, a fine relationship and it would solve the problem you mentioned also. Thank you. Thank you, Eloise, very much. We had not only two uh, excellent presentations, but I, I don't know if you're aware how remarkable it is, two scholars who each spoke less than their allotted time. <laughs> this, would be, uh, this would be exceptional, uh, if I may coin the phrase. So I have had in mind to ask a couple of questions, and I'll just I'll ask the panelists maybe to limit their, their answers to a couple of minutes to kind of get the Q&A part started, and then you could be thinking of things you'd like to ask, and we'll move toward a, a more conversational footing here. Um, the first question I would ask to each of you is, to what extent do you think American exceptionalism, in the view of your president that you're uh, speaking about today, <coughs> was a matter of economics? To be exceptional uh, uh, could be outproducing and having a stronger economic system. Uh, George, you mentioned that uh, Hoover felt that Europe was underproducing. Uh, and that that was not a good thing, and that the American system was better built for production. Annalise, Annalise you certainly mentioned uh, the, the Reagan strategy of, of outproducing and outcompeting Russia uh, economically uh, as well ultimately as militarily. So what extent did, did your president think of American exceptionalism as being a question of competing economically or of an economic system? Or do you think that really isn't, wasn't a strong component of American exceptionalism in, in the view of Hoover and then Reagan? George, will. Well, it's certainly a characteristic of Hoover's thought to emphasize the importance of productivity for economic improvement and greater material prosperity and greater quality of life. That, that's a theme that one sees uh, uh, for a long time in, in Hoover's thought. And he argued that socialism falls on, on the rock of, it fails on the rock of production. The important thing is not to try to redistribute poverty, but to try to <laughs> enlarge the pie. So he, he sees that America has a, a system that encourages that, that kind of, of thinking. But it, it, the, I would not say he was uh, an economic uh, determinist or thinking, thinking strictly or primarily in economic terms. What was really central for him about the American uh, experiment in terms of, of individual prosperity was the freedom to rise. He said the, the human particles should be free to move freely in the social solution. So he believed that that was kind of an engineer, kind of scientist <laughs> type of, uh, of uh, vocabulary, wasn't it? But, but so his, his point was that in America, people 
the uncommon people could rise and achieve and benefit the rest. We have, we have a society in which improvement is possible as a free society. So the point is not simply to acquire wealth, that's important, that's useful, but also to give people the opportunity to make use of the gifts that they have. Yeah. And so I think that larger spiritual sense of, of, of freedom is what is dominant in his thought, although he's certainly not unmindful of the importance of a free economic system. And he regards a free economic system is, is essential to, a, to political liberty as well. well it's always uh, risky, I think, to put uh, figures from history into the present environment. But uh, so, for example, might Hoover think that income mobility the ability to move up and down the scale might be more important than econ income in inequality, which is such an issue. Well, again, the, the, the key phrase for him was equality of opportunity. He was not an advocate of equality of result. Right. He was an advocate in some cases of, of government programs that he thought would facilitate economic e uh, equality or prevent inequality from going on generation after generation. So, for example, uh, he believed in antitrust laws to prevent private sector oppression or coagulation of the economy. So there, there's that, that aspect of him. Um, I think that the, his, his point was really to enlarge opportunity for people make, uh, through all sorts of means, including private sector and nonprofit means. He was a strong believer in what we call the voluntary sector and so on. So that, that sense of society being capable of improvement is essential to him, but he didn't see government as the engine of improvement. Government should be more of the, the umpire right. uh, uh, among those who are, are circulating in the social solution, so, so to speak. Right. So I, I don't think you would want to overstress the, uh, the economic uh, materialistic aspect of, of, right. of economics. It's more that that's a part of the human condition that we should cherish the freedom to be ourselves and to be helpful to others and improve the larger society. Okay, good, good. Uh, Annalise, how, how, how important would you say that uh, the economic dimension might have been to Reagan's view of American exceptionalism? Well, I think he sees the economic opportunities and strengths uh, that result from the basic from the idea that American is an, an exceptional country where anybody can come and they are free to pursue their own uh, goals and so forth. Yep. And that makes it possible, but it was, it was clear in 1980 that his view was that we were over-regulating, over-taxing. Uh, we had to deal with the problem of inflation and overspending. So it was government that was in the way rather than was facilitating, and clearly the economics is not the end all, but it makes everything else possible. And so uh, during the Reagan year, Reagan and Clinton years, we had growth of almost 4% in the last, since the turn of the millennium, we've had growth almost two percentage points lower. And uh, that the slow growth results in fewer jobs, lower wage increases, uh, less opportunity to pursue the American dream in terms of houses and so forth. And so low growth is an enormous economic, is an enormous problem for society and nope. creates a lot of other problems as well as paying for defense and entitlements. Nope. We, we often say, when, I mean, one reason I think in those terms is we often say that that in America, freedom is indivisible. You need political freedom, you need religious freedom, you need economic freedom, and, and maybe of the three, the most foundational is economic, because if, if a man or woman can earn their way in, uh, in this world, then the other freedoms can follow, but if they don't have that, the other two freedoms maybe aren't as meaningful. But, so my, my, I have some other questions. The only other one I'll ask now is, um, was there a divine or religious aspect to Reagan's and Hoover's view of American exceptionalism? Um, I think, Annalise, you talked uh, pretty directly about some of Reagan's. Um, to my mind, Hoover's maybe is less obvious than Reagan's. And then kind of my where I'm driving with this is, now that we live in an era of greater religious pluralism in America, and greater freedom not to have religion, if you will. Um, does that in any way limit 
our ability to enjoy American exceptionalism or to pursue American exceptionalism. I mean, for example, when John Winthrop did his City on a Hill speech, something like 98% of people in, in, in America were Protestant Christians. And um, certainly at the time of Hoover and maybe still at the time of Reagan, the, the Christian element of our society would be dominant, predominant. Um, that's less and less the case today. And so I wonder, so the question is, to what extent did Reagan and then Hoover really see a divine or religious element to American exceptionalism? And then as we have less of a shared religious commitment in the country today, is that a challenge to us? Well, I think for Reagan, he clearly viewed the United States as, uh, as he said, a, a place, a promised land that God chose to be available to people who wanted to be free. This was his own view, how he thought about it in his mind. He didn't say that this was true or that other people should believe it. He said, this is how I think about it. Okay. So, um, and, and he's not, uh, he's not talking about any particular God, either. Mm. Good yeah. Good. Okay. Yeah. So. Good answer. Good. Useful oh. distinctions. George? Hoover was uh, born, uh, born into a Quaker family. His mother was a recorded minister eventually in the Quaker church. Uh, and he was a, so let's say, one would say, a birthright Quaker. And he maintained an affiliation throughout his life, though he was not particularly active in a church-going sense most of the time. Um, but I, so I don't see in Hoover the kind of theological case for freedom that Annalise just mentioned, that America between being give, placed by God between two oceans and so forth. I don't recall Hoover ever saying anything quite like that. But you, if you look closely, you will see cases where Hoover will talk about the divine spark in each individual. That's the Quaker concept in a way, the inner light. And Hoover certainly thought, especially in his post-presidential years, that... Um, our rights, our freedoms come from God, not from the state. We are not pawns of the state. So Hoover uses spiritual language now and then in his later years, but it's, it's very um, non-denominational, very, I, would, I hesitate to say vague, but it's, it's, it's not language that would, I think, arouse opposition very much. So it's kind of a, maybe civil religion type language. But there is a, a kind of a... It's, it's in the background, but it's not as much in the forefront or maybe quite as explicit, I would say, as Reagan did in, his, in these moments when he mused, as, as Annalisa has mentioned. So, you, I mean, you probably see what I'm, both, with both my questions, I'm, I'm kind of probing what was essential to American exceptionalism in their view, and then how strong are those things today, and are we, would a president be more limited in his ability to make the economic case, to make the religious case? podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.